reading in chapter 1 of Haggai, verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, <clears throat> came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, under Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedeph, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house, and I will, make, I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. <clears throat> Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. Uh, <clears throat> may God add his blessing to this reading of his word. The historical setting of the book of Haggai, they had returned from captivity in Babylon uh, some 16 years previous to this. Uh, Haggai had been in captivity and had returned to the land under Zerubbabel, the governor. And uh, shortly after they came back, within the first year after they were back, they started rebuilding the temple. You remember that the temple was destroyed about 600 B.C. They come back 70 years later. And uh, the first thing they do is to begin to rebuild the temple. And they have permission from the emperor... Uh, who even uh, sends orders for them to be supplied with the building materials and uh, to be allowed to proceed. But at the same time, they have opposition uh, from the Samaritans. <clears throat> and uh, soon they, uh, due to opposition, uh, they uh, cease to build the temple. And so some 15 more years pass by, and then this man Haggai stands up, and he says that God has burdened him about this matter of the rebuilding of the temple. And he gives a word of reproof first to the people and to the leaders. Uh, the temple of the Lord is unfinished. And he says there's a wickedness in your waiting about this. You say the time has not come. Um, but he says uh, the time seems to have come for you to build your own houses. And you build them with uh, the finest air conditioning. And you uh, have taken great pains to see that your, your house is very elegant and adequate, and you've neglected the house of the Lord. And there's wickedness involved in such waiting. Uh, this delay uh, has an element of rebellion and sloth in it. He uh, goes on to, in a sense... Uh, say that this neglect 
of the Lord's house is really neglect of the Lord. You fail to honor him by failing to build his house. True, there are troubles, but uh, God expects us to move ahead in spite of difficulties. And he says, because uh, of the neglect of the Lord's house, God has had to deal with you. And the trouble that you've had, individually and nationally, uh, the financial crisis, the failure of the crops, all of these things are from the Lord. In the ninth verse, ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. I blew it away. You earn wages to put it in a bag with holes. You ever feel that way? <laughs> it says, uh, uh, this is not just natural coincidence. Uh, this uh, financial and economic crisis, uh, this crop failure and so on, is due to God uh, withholding his blessing. God withholding the uh, dew, God withholding the rain when needed and so on. Because God cannot bless such self-seeking. Uh, when you do not put God first, but put yourself ahead of God, which is what you do when you put your physical needs ahead of the need of his church, in a sense. He says uh, God has to withhold his blessings. Oh, God might prosper the man who was not one of his own people, who neglected him, who went on his own merry way, putting self first, his path might bloom as Eden bloomed, and that would be a curse. For God to prosper that man's ways would be a curse to that man, because it would comfort him in his situation. What he needs is something that will call him up short. Others may go on and neglect God and not suffer, but the Christian, the believer, cannot. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians, it's put like this. Paul writes to them, and he says, Due to your irreverence in the Lord's house, some of you are sick and weakly, some of you sleep, some of you have died. He says, uh, If you would judge yourselves, you'd not be judged. But when you're judged, you're chastened of the Lord. He does it in blessing, just like we chasten our children so that in the long run they won't suffer even more in order that you might not be judged with the world is the way it's put in 1 Corinthians. Others may neglect God, may live a life for self and have their path bloom. But the Christian cannot thank God. And he says, consider your ways. Think about this situation. Sit down and ask yourself, why have these things worked out the way they have? Is there something that God would have me do that I'm not doing? Or something I'm doing that is dishonoring to him? And as he announces this word of reproof, the people take it to heart. And uh, the testimony of the prophet is heeded as we read in the 12th verse of the first chapter. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, uh, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. The governor, uh, the high priest, uh, and the people, they say, that's true. 
this word of reproof, uh, they accept it, and they say, true, God has spoken the truth, and we've done wrong, and we will turn, and we will do right. They obeyed. Uh, the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. <clears throat> and the people did fear before the Lord. Now, as soon as they take this attitude, uh, then there comes a, a word of blessing. As uh, it says in verse 13, Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. Here comes a word of support. The, the people, though, as they begin to build again, are depressed. Uh, we read in the third verse of the second chapter where the question is asked of the people as they build and as the temple begins to go up and they look at its structure and the size of it and so on. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Are any of you men here who were... Uh, present in Jerusalem before this temple was built, uh, was burned 70 years ago, how does this temple compare with that temple? And they were depressed. They said, oh, this is a very meager temple compared to that temple. And they're depressed. But uh, God makes uh, a promise to them as he, as he says in uh, the fourth verse, yet don't be depressed. Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. And then he goes on to speak of the glory that will be attached to this temple. As he says in verse 7, And I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. This temple which you're building and you feel is not glorious at all. One day it will be far more glorious than any other temple that's ever been built. Because one will come, and his presence in the temple will be glorious. He is the desire of all nations. Jesus Christ would come into that temple. Oh, the temple was being refurbished uh, in the day in which Christ came by Herod. But nonetheless, uh, this was uh, the glory that would fill this temple, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to give a word of blessing. He's told them that he is with them. And... He tells them that he will begin to bless. But notice first the word about the evil that they have been contaminated with. In the second chapter, in the tenth verse, it says that in the four and twentieth day of the ninth month and so on, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. The error of the Jews at this point apparently was twofold. And number one, they thought that God should bless them simply because of going through the ritual. 
They were keeping the ordinances and so on. And uh, they had thought of an inherent efficacy to these ordinances. A polluted person could confer his pollutions on a holy thing while a holy thing could not transmit its sacredness to a polluted person. If you carry sacred meat in a garment, uh, does that uh, make the garment sacred? No. The fact that an offering is offered cannot transmit uh, its holiness, in a sense, its set-apartness to God, to the individual who offers it. If that individual in his heart is polluted, if he's been disobeying, the very fact that he comes and he prays or that he brings a gift, this in no way automatically removes his contamination. And apparently they thought that because we go through the ritual, because we come and we pray and we are in church, uh, therefore God must bless. He said, that's not so. And notice the time at which this question is asked. This is several months after they've started the work. And apparently they felt that as soon as we turn and we do right, then God's got to bless us materially. But God doesn't have to bless us materially as soon as we start to obey. Uh, this is something that uh, is a fallacy we all uh, engage in, a fallacious way of thinking. I wonder... Uh, how many times I've misled people along this line myself. Someone will come to me and they have financial problems and uh, we will begin to talk and it turns out that either they haven't been a Christian or that they've been a Christian possibly who has uh, been uh, in a backslidden state and I will suggest that they repent or that they receive Christ, whatever the case may be, and they do. And then I wait for God to just open the windows of heaven and uh, set them right up in business again. But you know, God doesn't always do that. I saw a man come to Christ here several years ago who was in deep financial trouble, and uh, I waited for then God to bless him, uh, and I'm still waiting. <laughs> he is too. Uh, God doesn't always work the way I think he ought to work. Uh, we went and we asked someone else about about this, and uh, the answer was, take some apples longer to bake than others. <laughs> uh, the Lord has his purposes, and he means them for good to the individual. But somehow we get the idea that once we turn and start obeying, then God's obligated to clear up this problem we had. And he's not at all. Now, he may do it. As a matter of fact, he does do it for them at this point. But he waited several months to relieve them of the concept that he was now obligated to bless. It's a gift any time God sees fit to bestow blessings, spiritual or material, on his people. And he does see fit here. And there comes the word of promise <clears throat> in reference to the blessing, as he says in the 17th verse of the second chapter, I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands, yet ye turned not to me. I sent these troubles to you to bless you, to cause you to think and consider and turn your, your feet unto my testimonies, but you didn't turn. 
But now you have turned. And while I'm not obligated to bless, I choose to bless. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from that day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed yet in the barn, yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth. You laid the foundation, and uh, it has not brought forth. The fruit is still as it was, but now, from this day, will I bless you. And so God sees fit to bestow on them, uh, again, uh, blessing here. And he goes on to speak of the protection that he will give from their enemies round about. Again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the fourth and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow thrones of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. Whenever God's people begin to get right with God, what happens? Well, the opposition gets different. Oh, let me tell you, uh, the reason that the average church doesn't have any problems is it's dead. Huh? You let a church come alive, you let the people start witnessing, and the things that will begin happening, fantastic, because uh, there are enemies to God's people beginning to move out in God's strength and obedience to God. There are many, many enemies to this whole approach to things. And uh, this would cause us to hold back. But the minute we move out in obedience, this word of promise comes, leave the enemies to me. You just walk in obedience and leave the problems to me. It's amazing to me how the problems in our church have increased over the years. So have the converts. I expect they'll just keep on increasing. And I expect I'll just keep walking on water. <laughs> This is the only approach to the way we're to live. Uh, we can't uh, overcome the problems or the enemies in our own strength. Those are Lord's. The battle is his. He calls on us to obey. The lessons uh, here, it would seem to me, is number one, or number one, the fact that our expenditure our ingratiation of ourselves, maybe it's in terms of time, maybe it's in terms of finance, and maybe it's in terms of just some jobs we don't want to do, but however we ingratiate ourselves uh, while we pretend to have nothing for God. We really can't give to God's work our time, but we were at the country club on Wednesday night. We really can't give our money, but we did go out and buy a boat and a place at the lake. You see, no matter uh, how we may pretend to ourselves that we really cannot do the Lord's work that he would have us do, uh, this will bear testimony against us. This boat will be crying out against us one day when we stand before him. And the carved ceilings, the costly ornaments, those sealed houses, will have a tongue in the day of judgment. Uh, that's the first lesson. That's uh, right there. And the second lesson is that <clears throat> no man ever gains anything by trying to cheat God. 
I remember another businessman uh, who who said, you know, said I decided I might as well tithe because the fact of the matter is God took it. <laughs> uh, how much better to give it gladly and willingly? You don't gain by cheating God. And uh, then the third point. A careful pondering of God's dealings with us will often indicate to us God's will regarding us. God was, I hesitate to use the word trying, because I can't think of God as trying to do anything. And yet, in a sense, God was trying to turn them. He was exerting trouble and pressure to bring them back to him. And there was a limit to which he was going to exert this. And God will send various things to cause us to stop and think. And they simply would put it down to circumstance or to bad luck. There's no such thing as bad luck. God controls every hair of our heads, whether it falls or stays in place. And uh, nothing can take place apart from his permission. And while there is such a thing as a, as a harmful introspection that I'm always asking myself, uh, am I doing something wrong? And no matter what happens, I immediately think this happened because I'm doing something drastically wrong and I can't imagine what it is. And I keep looking in and, boy, it's black in there. <laughs> uh, that's not healthy. But at the same time, a considering of our ways when something happens, uh, this is healthy. The more I'll consider, the more carefully, the quicker, the less pressure that's needed to get me back in the path of obedience. Another point would be this fact of the obedience that we are to render is without bargaining. I don't come to God and say, God, I will obey you if you will bless me. You don't bargain with God. He's under no obligation to bless. I am under an obligation to obey. And when I've done all, I'm still an unprofitable servant. Finally, God is waiting to be gracious. And he will meet the returning uh, individual or people uh, when they face up to a word of rebuke, when a word comes home to us from a uh, circumstance, a preacher, a friend, that God strikes it home to our heart. When we respond, when we, instead of excusing it, instead of putting a pillow between our souls and that sharp point, when we say, yes, God, I did do wrong, and I will set it straight. You give me the strength, and this very day, relying on you, I'll start straightening that matter out. God is waiting to be gracious. He loves to bless his people, and he will bless when we turn to him in this way. The initial sin was that of waiting, wicked waiting, in a sense, to set things straight. And let us not be found doing that. Of course, the starting place is to come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Here, if you've not done that, that's the most wicked thing you can do. Once you've been told the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this man, uh, the Son of God, died for your sins, gave himself, and you refuse him, how wicked can a person be? This is the height of wickedness.
and waiting, the idea of I will wait until I've had some fun. Goodness, isn't that terrible thinking? How long I thought that way. God, I understand that your son died for my sins, and I understand the thing that put him on the cross was the type things that I'm doing right now, but Lord, I want to do a few more of them, if you don't mind waiting, to keep me alive. Well, I don't want to die, but I do want to do a few more of these things, and then I will receive your son. What a wicked, wicked heart that was in me, and it may be in others present tonight. A wholehearted turning from sin in honest repentance, a receiving of Christ by faith, by trust in him. That's the starting place. But with many of us who have started there already, considering our ways would be the starting place. And asking God to show if there's anything that's wrong, and then being sensitive as we walk. The more sensitive we are, the more our conscience becomes sensitive to his dealings with us. If you're here tonight and uh, there's something in your life that he's been speaking to you about that you would like to come and talk about, maybe you're not sure of your relation to him, you're not sure you've received him, come and talk after the service.